The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks once again climbing to new record highs on strong earnings reports and vaccination hopes, but those gains may be on hold a bit today. But not holding back. Cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, hitting a new record high in the overnight session, now well above $45,000 per token. New details emerging in a lawsuit over Boeing 737 MAX and whether the company's board did enough to challenge its former CEO on the plane's safety. And Reddit's valuation doubling thanks to a new round of funding on the heels of the Wall Street bet stock trading mania and hysteria and trading in Twitter, keeping an eye on that focus because it's set to report its latest quarterly results today as the company looks to find new ways to help freshen up its business model amid continuing challenges. It is Tuesday, February 9th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Here is how your money and the global markets are setting their day up. Stock futures pulling back just a hair from those record levels again. You can see the Dow Jones implied lower by just about 43 points. The S&P lower by roughly five points and the Nasdaq down by about 15 points at the opening bell if these futures moves hold into regular cash equities trading. Now, this is all after stocks kicked off the new trading week by climbing to new record highs. The Dow and the S&P have now advanced for six straight sessions, with the Nasdaq climbing higher in five out of the last six sessions. You can see there's some big moves for the Dow in the overall session yesterday. The Russell 2000 small cap index leading the charge, climbing two and a half percent on its own to its own record high. That index has gained nearly 16 percent just year to date. And we're only in the early stages of February at this point. Also want to check the price of oil right now as it hovers near its highest level in 13 months. We have supply cuts by major producers and optimism over fuel demand, really helping to fuel the recovery there, helping to support energy markets. WTI crude, $58.23, half a percent gain there. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark, almost just shy of $61 per barrel there. 64 basis points to the upside for world benchmark crude. And we have to take a look at that continued rise in cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin trading right now in the Coinbase platform is off half a percent, but it's still over $46,000 per token. Meanwhile, on the Ethereum side of things, Ether on Coinbase up 2% right now, near record highs again, 1774 per token there. Ripple, Litecoin, the others all following suit to the upside as well. This after hitting a record high of $48,000 overnight for Bitcoin following Tesla's announcement of its $1.5 billion investment in that cryptocurrency. Let's now go worldwide. Juliana Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom with a look at the early trade in Europe. And it seems like it's fairly stable, just kind of holding like ours are in the U.S. Right, Juliana? 
That's exactly right, Dom. We're basically tracking U.S. futures this morning. We've got red on the board, but overall the moves fairly muted to the downside. So every major region is trading lower. The Spanish market leading the way down just over 1%. This does come after a decent day yesterday. The main benchmark, the stock 600, rose 0.3%. A lot of those same reflation pro-cyclical forces that you saw in the U.S. were taking hold here in Europe. From a sector perspective, you mentioned the rally in oil prices. That is providing a lift to the energy majors. The oil and gas basket is up 0.5%, the only basket that is trading higher this morning. On the downside, we've got utilities down just over 1%, immediate construction, chemicals, and autos. So no major trend when it comes to cyclicals versus defensives here in Europe. For the most part, investors seem to be pausing for breath, digesting the raft of earnings that have come through this morning and deciding where to go from here. Dom? All right, Juliana Teitelbaum, live in London with the latest there. Thank you very much. Tesla says its sales in China have more than doubled last year, according to a filing yesterday. The company says sales in the country rose to $6.7 billion. That's about one-fifth of the company's overall sales. Tesla's Model 3 was the best-selling electric car in China in the year 2020. And the gains come after the company began ramping up production at its fifth factory in Shanghai and selling China-made vehicles to the local market there. We're off about 1% in the pre-market trade for Tesla. Boeing's board is reportedly being accused of failing to challenge its former CEO on the safety of the company's embattled 737 MAX jet or his push to counter negative reports amid two fatal crashes. According to the Wall Street Journal, citing newly released portions of a shareholder lawsuit after the Lion Air crash in 2018, Dennis Muhlenberg designed a lobbying campaign to push back against bad publicity and criticism of that plane. The journal says Muhlenberg allegedly discussed the plan with then lead director Kenneth Duberstein and board member David Calhoun, who is now, by the way, Boeing's current CEO. And DoorDash has announced it's buying salad making robot startup Chowbotics. Terms of the deal have not been disclosed. According to reports, though, DoorDash is looking at how to deploy Chowbotics automation technology across restaurants in a bid to help them expand their menu and their market space as well. DoorDash shares up about one half of one percent in the extended trade. It's up 75 percent since its IPO. Well, back to the markets now. All three major indices hovering at record highs with about half of the S&P 500 having already reported their earnings results. Today, we'll get results from the likes of Twitter and Lyft and Cisco. And then later on in the week, you've got Coca-Cola, Under Armour, General Motors, Uber, Disney, Pepsi. You get the idea. Still a lot of big names left to report. For more now, I'm joined by Rob Morgan, Director of Market Strategy over at Sethi Companies. And Rob, if we are halfway through the earnings season and markets are at record highs, is it fair to say that investors are at least happy or not worried about the earnings strength picture? Yeah, Dom, I, I think that's absolutely right. It's It's been um, a pretty great earnings season so far. You know, as of Friday, as you, as you pointed out, 53% of the S&P 500 had reported and 83% of the companies are, are, are beating estimates, which is, which is a big number. Probably even more encouraging is the fact that analysts are upping their estimates for, for future quarters, which is, which is rare because usually in the, uh, in the second month of a quarter, which we're in right now, they're, they're usually cutting estimates. So, so yes, uh, investors are certainly happy with earnings season right now. Has there been anything that stood out to you so far in the first half of earnings season that really has you either optimistic or a bit more cautious on markets at record highs? 
Well, I, I'm, uh, I am, you, and you noted earlier in the program how well the uh, the small cap space has done, and I, I think it may have gotten a little ahead of itself. I think from more of a, a, a macro picture, I would o- overweight large cap growth stocks and underweight, uh, you know, small cap value stocks. Partly, partly because of that valuation, also partly because um, you know the Fed's going to keep printing money here, and so that's going to be pulling the dollar down which should help uh, big cap multinationals. So if, those, if, if, if it's those big cap multinationals, it's been a big debate among guests we've had on our air over the past several weeks now at this point, this idea that many favor that pro-cyclicality, the, the COVID recovery trade in small and mid cap stocks. If you're going back towards large cap names, what exactly in large cap tempts you at this level? Many argue that the stocks at the high end of the technology and communication services sectors are again overvalued at this stage. Yeah, technology not not uh, hugely in favor right now. My my three favorite sectors are uh, financials, energy, and materials. And and when when I'm looking at sectors that I like, you know, I, I look not only at uh, visible earnings growth, but also valuation and technicals. And and you alluded to it earlier in the program that the uh, the energy space uh, seems to be firming up, which, which is good. So those are those are three areas I'd be looking at right now. If you are, we're also talking about the reflation trade these days. There's been a lot of mention in the financial press these days about this idea that inflation may be picking up again. We have the bond market signaling that inflation could be at the highest levels that we had since pre-pandemic. Is this normalization in prices, this normalization in inflation expectations, something to worry about or embrace? Well, I think right now uh, it's it's probably a good thing uh, because that's what the Fed is looking for. The, the Fed is the Fed's looking for not only full employment but two percent inflation, and uh, and so that right now that's probably a good thing. Now we <laughs> you can always get too much of a good thing, but I, I think at this stage uh, we're we're pretty far away from that. All right, interest rates certainly a focus for a lot of investors. Rob Morgan and Sethi, thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. Hey, thanks, Tom. Now to Washington, D.C., as Congress prepares to shift at least some of its attention from a COVID relief package to the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. Tracy Potts joins us now from Washington with more on that. Good morning, Tracy. Tom, good morning. And let's point out this is the first and only time in our country's history that any public official has faced a second impeachment trial. It gets started this afternoon. 100 centers weighing the evidence uh, of whether or not there's enough to convict President Trump, but really starting with the question of whether this trial should be happening at all. Today's impeachment trial begins with senators deciding if the trial itself is constitutional. There must be truth and accountability. It's political retribution. I fear we're skating on very thin ice. Former President Trump is accused of inciting the January 6th riot at the Capitol. In 32 hours of arguments, lawyers plan to use his own words for... I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully... And against him. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Still unknown, will either side call witnesses? Trump lawyers say he will not testify. Look, we've got an offer to come and testify. He's decided not to. We'll let the Senate work that out. Trump's team calls the trial political theater, arguing his fiery speech is protected by the First Amendment. 
Democrats claim he aimed the mob, quote, like a loaded cannon down Pennsylvania Avenue. I got to listen to this crap, so uh, I hope by Sunday or Monday the trial will be over. We have to put an end to Donald Trump's big lie once and for all. Democrats plan to make their case with social media posts and videos aiming to convince 17 Republicans that the former president is guilty. And the White House press secretary says President Biden actually doesn't plan to watch much of the trial at all this week. Tom? All right, Tracy Potts in Washington with the latest there. Thank you very much. When we come back on the show, scientists investigating the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, offering an update into that probe. We will go live to China for the latest there. Plus, a multi-billion dollar deal by Electronic Arts as it makes a very big push into mobile gaming again. And see you in September. What some of New York City's biggest companies are telling workers about returning to the office and when. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. It's a live shot of Hong Kong right now. They've just closed up their trading day. It's a bit cloudy over there, but hopefully everyone's relaxing since the day is now coming down to an end. Let's now check out some of the charts that we are watching very closely in trading so far over the past week. In another sign of the COVID recovery trade taking hold, at least in the near term, to start 2021, take a look at the last week's best performing sector in the S&P 500. That is the energy sector. It continues a near-term trend. Energy has been a huge outperformer as fuel prices start to go higher as well. Oil prices on the rise, up 11% over one week. Meanwhile, healthcare-related stocks, the worst performing sector, it's still positive over the last week, but it's up just about flat on the session. You can see that gap pretty large here between energy and healthcare. perhaps another sign that people are investing like they think that the COVID vaccines are rolling out adequately across the country. One other place to watch right now is what's happening in the bond market. We mentioned it earlier in the last segment, but this idea here that inflation expectations are on the rise. Take a look at 10-year notes and two-year notes. On those particular yields you can see there, on a three-year basis, we have seen some of the biggest gaps that we've seen in those two rates in that span, indicating that perhaps interest rates are signaling better economic times ahead. And that has led to, again, outperformance near and medium term in the bank stocks. Take a look at this particular ETF that tracks some of those big bank names. The ticker is KBE. It's the Spider Bank ETF. It's down about two-thirds of 1% in the pre-market trade. However, 
Take a look at this move higher over the last one week, 6% gains right there. And by the way, this particular sector ETF is near its highest levels over the past year. We're still on deck for the show as lawmakers in Washington continue to fight over a COVID relief bill. Some states are going it alone. Elon Moy joins us now to break down the steps that they're taking to get a stimulus package done in place. That's coming up after the break. Today's big number, 700 million. That's how many electric vehicles could be on the road globally by 2050, according to research from Wood McKenzie. EV sales are expected to reach 62 million per year. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's a live shot of an area of New York City that many of us Comcast, NBC Universal employees hold dear. It's uh, 30 Rock down there. A live shot in New York. It's still dark, 5.20 a.m. Eastern Time. Let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera, who's normally in that section of town these days, joins us now with the latest. Good morning, Francis. Hey, Dom. Good to see you. Good morning to you. Let's start with a potentially poisonous hack that's under investigation in Florida. Authorities say someone gained remote access to the computer system at the water treatment facility in Oldsmar, Florida, just outside of Tampa. Investigators said the suspect was able to alter the level of chemicals and sent a burst of lye into the water system. The sheriff's office said that the public was never in danger, adding that they don't know whether the breach originated within the United States or outside the country. A pair of rare Nike sneakers specifically designed for former President Barack Obama in 2009 will go on sale starting at $25,000. The size 12 and a half hyperdunks are one of only two pairs in existence. They were made to honor Obama's love for basketball. The shoes are displayed at Sotheby's in New York City here. The auction will open at a symbolic time at 4.44 p.m. on Friday. Mary Wilson, the member of the legendary Motown group The Supremes, has died. Wilson co-founded The Supremes as a 15-year-old in Detroit. The group with Diana Ross on lead vocals had 12 number one singles on Billboard and became Motown's most successful acts. One of them, Wilson, died suddenly last night, according to her publicist, but no cause was given. She was 76 years old. And um, for Tuesday, those are your headlines. All right, Francis Rivera, thank you very much for that. Still on deck for the show here. Twitter preparing to release its latest quarterly results. Axios's Sarah Fisher lays out the potential hurdles ahead that could curb that stock's continued climb. It's up 59% in a year. And a programming note, this afternoon, don't miss CNBC's Healthy Returns Spotlight. It will have a deep dive into the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine among some of the special guests in that program. Walgreens, Rick Gates, Johnson & Johnson's Alex Gorski, Octa's Mark Rogers and Howard University Hospitals, Anita Jenkins and more. Register now at cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. We'll watch exchanges back after this. Futures pointing to a breather at the opening bell after the major U.S. indexes all closed at record highs. Washington watch as Democrats on Capitol Hill push for another COVID relief bill. Some states are looking to take stimulus matters into their own hands and wondering when the world will return to in-person work. A growing number of New York companies are saying 
See you in September. We'll bring you those details. It's Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. And you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Aha, bring me back. Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Here's how your money and investments are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. As I just mentioned, stock futures are pointing towards a muted open. The Dow is implied lower by roughly 45 points. The S&P off by just about five points implied and the Nasdaq down by roughly 17. Let's now check on oil prices as well as they hover near their highest level in almost 13 months. We have supply cuts by major producers, OPEC and its partners, optimism over fuel demand recovery, helping to support energy markets. You can see right now WGI U.S.-based crude prices, $58.12, one quarter of 1% to the upside. Meanwhile, world Brent crude futures right now 30, 38 basis points higher, $60.79. And we have to take a look at the continued rise among cryptocurrencies. Right now, Bitcoin prices are off of those highs that we saw overnight. 46185 on the Coinbase platform right now. That's about a 1% decline. This after hitting a record of $48,000 in change overnight following Tesla's announcement yesterday of its $1.5 billion investment in that particular cryptocurrency. So keep an eye on those Bitcoin prices. In corporate news, Electronic Arts is buying mobile games developer Glue Mobile for $12.50 per share in cash. That's a 36% premium to the company's closing price on Friday. You can see there Glue Mobile up 35% pre-market, Electronic Arts up 1% in the extended hours trade. Reddit's valuation doubling after its latest funding round. The Wall Street Journal reports the social media company most, most recently known for its role in the Wall Street trading frenzy is now worth around $6 billion. Reddit raised $250 million in its latest funding round, that internet board growing in value thanks to Wall Street bets. And Boeing has a warning for the Biden administration as the federal government considers the idea of requiring COVID tests before allowing passengers on domestic flights. Two senior executives at the aerospace giant wrote a letter to the White House arguing the rule could pose significant financial harm, saying there would be a heavy burden on an already financially beleaguered airline industry. Now to Washington, D.C., as Congress continues its debate over another round of COVID relief. About a dozen states and cities are proceeding with their own round of stimulus checks. Elon Moy joins us now with what we know about how the money is being spent and whether it's making a difference in the broader economy. Good morning, Elon. Well, good morning, Don. You're right. Cities and states across the country are not waiting on Washington to send more relief to their residents. Six states and seven cities have already handed out their own version of the stimulus checks, and that list includes Colorado, New Mexico, North Carolina, along with Los Angeles, Portland, and Houston. And the amounts range from 200 to as much as $1,200. And the irony here is that in some cases, these checks are funded in part with federal money from the last COVID relief packages. Now, the, those checks are all one-time direct payments. But in St. Paul, the mayor, Melvin Carter, tapped $200,000 in federal funding to launch a guaranteed income program that gives 150 families $500 a month for 18 months.
we are used to creating public resources in ways uh, that sort of say to families, you can only use it in this way or you can only use it in that way. And we know that one family right now who needs food help in January might need rent help in, in February. So our goal is to invest directly in those families and provide a resource that they can invest, that they can use to do what they know is in the best interest of their children and family. So what we're seeing is that the checks from cities and states tend to be more targeted than the blanket payments that are coming from Congress. For example, in New Mexico, they only sent the checks to low-income residents who didn't already get one from Washington. But, Dom, this is all part of a growing economic movement that really sees direct payments and straight-up cash as the most effective and efficient benefit of all. Back to you. All right, Ilan. So so what exactly now do we know about who will get the federal stimulus checks that, that, that are being debated right now? It seems to be dynamic. It's a moving target. But what types of people could be targeted for that type of payment from the federal government? Yeah, so while there is political and economic consensus that uh, these checks should go out to residents of states and residents of the country, exactly who should get it has been such a big source of debate. And so what Democrats are now proposing is that the threshold to qualify for the full amount should stay the same at $75,000 for individuals, $150,000 for couples, but that they should phase out more quickly. So they would be capped at $100,000 for individuals and $200,000 for couples. And that really answers the criticism from Republicans and even some Democrats that these checks are not well targeted and it's really lower income residents and lower income citizens who would benefit the most from receiving them. All right. That, that cash desperately needed by millions of Americans. Elon Moy with the latest there. Thank you very much. Well, Twitter reports fourth quarter results after the closing bell later on today. The two big moments for the company over the last several months. First of all, banning former President Trump from the platform and CEO Jack Dorsey appearing remotely before a pair of contentious congressional hearings, along with the heads of Facebook and Google as well. Let's talk more about what Twitter may say today and the issues it could face down the road. Joining me now is Sarah Fisher, media reporter at Axios. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us here. How big of a target does big social media have on its back from the likes of Congress? And what will Twitter say about it later on today? Well, Dom, it's an absolutely huge target. We know that Congress is looking to potentially revoke or reform Section 230, which, as you know, gives social media platforms some immunity for the content that's posted on their sites. But the big challenge for Twitter today ahead of earnings is not just going to be addressing regulatory threats, but threats about whether or not these actions, you know, banning President Trump and some of his allies, actually impact user growth. That's what analysts are going to be wondering today, whether or not user engagement is impacted. We know there have been some surveys that it might not have had as big of an impact that some may have forecasted. But if it does, Dom, that presents a huge threat to Twitter's business. Do you think, Sarah, that that investors are, are keying very much on that? I mean, just intuitively, as a user of the platform, I think to myself, President Trump back then had millions and millions of users. He was probably one of the biggest catalysts for driving engagement on that platform. You've taken that out of the picture. How exactly then do investors start to handicap the, the likes of, or the prospects for Twitter, knowing that there are, there are a, lot less, a lot fewer people, I guess, engaging the platform in the way that they used to over the last four years? Yeah, well, Twitter is uniquely impacted by this, of course, but I think a lot of media companies and platforms are facing this. What do you do when Donald Trump is no longer driving a crazy news cycle that drove tons of engagement? I think what analysts are going to want to hear is, 
What's Twitter's plan for tackling and monetizing live events? Twitter has, over the past few years, made itself distinct by becoming the platform that you go to when there's breaking news, when there's a major sports event, etc. But the problem for Twitter is it hasn't been able to turn that engagement into really meaningful revenue. I'm looking for analysts to ask questions about what's your plan to increase average revenue per user, especially during breaking news events with things like new video ads and potentially even new subscription offerings that'll get those deep dive engaged followers even more engaged on certain topics. So we've heard we've heard some of those reports and, and, and Twitter even confirmed it to The Verge saying that they're considering or looking at some of these you know, subscription type offerings that you mentioned there. It, it seems as though I remember the days of Yahoo, you know, and for the, for some of the younger folks out there. Yes, Yahoo was a big thing back when I was growing up in the Internet age. When they started charging for things, it kind of signaled the top for them. Do do we feel as though social media companies right now, when they start charging active daily users, fees that this could be something that is perhaps a top for some of these companies the advertising model is is seemingly what signals health in some of these companies sure dom and advertising is going to continue to float these companies for the foreseeable future but we see a different trend happening during the pandemic look at these apps like OnlyFans, like patreon like substack we have found that people are willing to pay their favorite creators for exclusive content. And I think Twitter gets that. I don't know that people are going to subscribe just to be a part of Twitter, but they will pay to make sure that their favorite creators can continue to make content for them. And so that's why you're seeing Twitter lean into possible subscriptions around writers and journalism. They just acquired a newsletter platform. And they're also reportedly testing features where people can directly pay Twitter users for other types of content, whether it's commerce and things that they're selling or unique writing and journalism again. So I think that Twitter, it really just depends on what it is they're going to be charging people for and whether or not they can execute in a way that actually gets those monetizable daily users, to your point, interested in paying. Monetizable is the key word here. Before we let you go, the big difference between Twitter and Facebook, Instagram to me is this idea that I've actually transacted on Facebook and Instagram. It's driven purchase decisions for me. Does Twitter need to look at some of that, the e-commerce and digital payment side of things to help kind of drive engagement? Yes. Twitter, in my opinion, needs to focus on core ad product. When you talk to marketers, Dom, they'll tell you the reason we pour our money into Google and Facebook is because we see return on investment. We know our ads get people to buy things. One, Twitter needs to focus on making sure its ad product actually is compelling enough to get people to buy things. And two, Twitter has no efforts, to your point, to introduce commerce to the platform. As we are in this pandemic, more and more people are buying things online. If Twitter doesn't start to think about it, it's a missed opportunity. All right. Twitter's results after the closing bell today. Sarah Fisher at Axios, thank you very much. Always great to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Dom. All right, coming up on the show, it's the question every worker and corporate leader is asking these days. When will work return to pre-pandemic normal levels, or will it ever? Robert Frank has been talking to New York City businesses and brings us some of those answers coming up next. But first, as we head out to break, some of your other top stories this morning. Shares of Chegg climbing higher this morning following stronger-than-expected fourth-quarter results. The education technology company reporting earnings of $0.55 per share on revenues of more than $205 million. Those shares up 5% pre-market. A federal judge has set a hearing next month in SpaceX's bid to block a Department of Justice subpoena over its hiring records. 
The federal government has been investigating whether Elon Musk's company discriminates against foreigners in its hiring practices. And low-cost airline Sun Country has filed paperwork for an initial public offering. The carrier, which was bought by Apollo Global Management back in 2017, is betting on a rebound in air travel amid improving COVID-19 conditions. Air travel, a big focus for many travelers out there. Worldwide Exchange is back in just a moment. It's a live shot of New York City, the skyline in Manhattan there. It's uh, 5.40 a.m. Eastern time. The days are getting longer, little by little, so we'll see when the sun comes up. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Companies across the country are trying to figure out when to bring their workers back to the office and what the new normal, to coin a Mohammed al-Aryan term, might look like these days. Robert Frank joins us out with what he's been hearing specifically from that New York City skyline that we just saw. Robert. Good morning, Dom. Well, the CEOs of the top employers in New York City are now looking at September as really the earliest date to start bringing workers back to the office. Uh, The Partnership for New York City, they represent about 300 CEOs of the top companies and employers in New York City. They say that September target, that assumes an optimistic rollout of the vaccine and workers getting vaccinated. Now, that date could easily slide even further. Now, when the CEOs were surveyed back in October of last year, most said the reopening would be July of 2021. So you can see that that could push forward yet again. The partnership saying only about 10 to 15 percent of the 1.5 million Manhattan office workers have currently returned. Tiffany is the latest to try to bring some workers back with the new owner LVMH telling its executives and staff that they will be required to be in the office Two days a week, starting March 1st, that they're going to follow state and CDC rules. Now, since the retail staff at Tiffany's have worked throughout the pandemic, LVMH saying that management and back office can also work hybrid. Manhattan's office office vacancy rate now the highest on record at over 15 percent. And the leases in January fell by 47 percent over last year. So, Dom, a long way to go here on the occupancy side, even when workers start coming back. All right. So, so let's let's kind of focus on the occupancy side. I mean, we know how bad it's been for certain metro areas because people are moving to the suburbs. I am a suburbs guy. I've seen the real estate market in my neighborhood surge over the last year. Now, when it comes to space about those leases, are, are companies actually giving up their space? Are they moving? Are they getting out of the city? How exactly are they dealing with all of that empty floor space that they have in Manhattan and elsewhere? Right now, since a lot of these leases are long-term leases, many of them 10 years, it's really tough to get out. So what you're seeing is a lot of companies trying to negotiate, trying to get out, looking in New Jersey. Um, and, and, and so far, you haven't seen a mass exodus simply because those contracts are pretty iron tight. Now, what you have seen, which is kind of surprising, are some companies continue to look for more space. Robinhood, apparently, is looking for quite a bit of space in Manhattan. Uh, so you've got some newcomers coming in. Uh, but but it, even at the new buildings, you've got millions of square feet of new space that came onto the pipeline last year and will come on this year. And so even if you don't get people leaving or emptying their space, it's that absorption of the new space, about 8 million square feet of it, coming onto the market, that's going to be the issue. And so the question is, what does the real rent turn out to be in Manhattan, both on the residential and commercial side? It's got to come down. The question is, how much? And the longer workers stay out of Manhattan, 
the fall, uh, the further that's going to fall. I'm, I'm also curious, Robert, as, as you've been kind of going around and, and reporting this out, do you get a sense just from a general perspective, a, a layperson's perspective about whether the New York City market when it comes to workers and residents is tilting more towards people wanting to be back in the city, wanting to be living in the city, wanting to be in the office physically in the city, or are people still a little bit more apprehensive, a little nervous about going back, whether living there or in the office? I, I, I wonder because I don't know how many people really want to go back to the office. I know that a lot of people here at our company have been trying to get back to the office. There's just not capacity to do so with social distancing requirements and everything else. I think it's a mix, Don. It's not only the health issues, but to your point, a lot of people who already lived in the suburbs or a lot, hundreds of thousands of people that went to the suburbs or out of New York City, what they thought temporarily during the pandemic. And, and the longer this drags on, we're look, now looking at September, the more used to that new life they're going to get, whether it's up in the Hudson Valley, Long Island, Westchester, or even further away. And so for those people beyond the health issues, it's getting used to that new life way outside of New York City, better lifestyle, lower cost of living. That's going to be those are the folks that probably don't want to come back to the office. And if they do, they probably want to come back maybe one or two or three days tops a week. And that's going to be the issue is how many of that 1.5 million office workers that did work in Manhattan actually come back on a regular basis. All right. It's that hybrid model still evolving there. Robert Frank with the latest there on the New York City real estate market. Thank you very much for that. Now to a developing story out of China. A World Health Organization team is in China investigating the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and offering an update on its probe. It happened just a short time ago. Yunus Yun has been monitoring the situation in Beijing with the latest there. Good evening, Yunus. Good evening, Dom. Uh, the press briefing is happening uh, as we speak. And um, uh, be- even before this this briefing, uh, the WHO team on the ground had been trying to manage down expectations of exactly what could come out of this investigation. And they it, it looks as though that the conclusion is really that the results are not very conclusive. Now, in terms of the key findings, there were some. Uh, the um, WHO chief on the ground had said that the overall picture has not changed, but their understanding um, of the, the beginning days um, really is still there. So he said um, one of the um, highlights is that the Huanan market, which is the wet market that had been linked to most of the early cases, um, is not the source. They did find that the virus was circulating in other parts of the city at the time. Now, another interesting highlight was that uh, they believe that the most likely scenario of the way that the virus moved from um, animal to human or that was introduced to humans was through a a third animal species that is closer to humans. Uh, They did not rule out bats. They said that uh, the virus looked very similar to one that you would see in bat populations, but still also um, mentioned that Wuhan is not really known for a place that has bats. The other interesting um, point, though, Dom, is that they did not rule out the possibility that the virus could have come from a lab incident. Um, He mentioned that this was the least likely scenario from their perspective, but it is still on the table. Eunice, uh, we've been focused so much on Wuhan. Is, Is it 
pretty much a, a given right now that Wuhan is the epicenter. I, is there a possibility that the WHO, the Chinese officials are looking at that it might have been the, the origins might have come from somewhere else? I, I'm just curious about whether or not Wuhan is truly the epicenter. I, I say that because I see photos and videos of life in Wuhan right now, and it looks like the virus never even existed. Yeah, that's right. Well, if you were talk, just uh, talking to some of the Chinese officials as well as the WHO officials, uh, they were saying that it looks as though the virus was circulating in other parts of the world and not necessarily in, in Wuhan um, before December 2019. The uh, Chinese official had gone through um, a lot of the data he said, and then, of course, the WHO followed through as well, saying that a lot of the data in various, either at, at blood samples that they were checking with animals that they were checking over the course of the year for uh, 2019, that they didn't find widespread circulation of the virus, uh, not only in Wuhan, but also in some other parts of China. So um, they put forth the idea that uh, it could potentially have um, come into the country or just come from a different part of, of China through um, frozen uh, food or frozen like this, the cold chain, because it does actually um, um, still survive in, in frozen areas and low temperatures. So this is another idea that's been put forth, we've heard from the Chinese in the past, but also um, has continued to be uh, propagated here by the um, Chinese authorities. All right. Yuni Shun with the latest there in Beijing on the WHO briefing on the origins of the coronavirus. Thank you very much for that. We appreciate it. Coming up on the show, futures pointing to a breather at the opening bell after the major U.S. indexes all closed at record highs in yesterday's session. We will talk about the trading day ahead and the week ahead coming up next. And if you have not already done so, subscribe to our new podcast, Worldwide Exchange, in everyday and audio format. If you miss us here live on air, you can check us out on Apple or on Spotify or whatever podcast app you choose. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Back to the markets right now. Stock futures indicating a modest downside move in the Dow, the S&P and NASDAQ. This all after the three major indices once again hit new record highs in yesterday's session. But your next guest says a near-term congression may be on tap and will be good for the overall markets. Joining me now is Potomac Wealth Advisors, President Mark Avalone. Mark, we should, I guess, look for some kind of a dip, but are they viable? And should you look at certain types of sectors over others? Well, the markets, you know, we're still in a bull market. So when we talk about volatility, we're really talking about an end to the consecutive days, up days. We're looking at froth in, in these SPAC stocks. We're looking at, at oil on, an, um, on, on rising with other commodities. And even high yield bonds now are dipping. The yields are, are, are dipping into investment grade bond territory. When you look at all that, clearly investors are optimistic and optimism sometimes has to be tempered. And when it does, it weeds out some players that aren't committed. It weeds out investors that are in for quick trading gains and creates a foundation for a next leg up higher. And we think that next leg up higher continues 2021 with a, with a relentless Fed, with vaccines, with congressional money prudent or otherwise coming out into the market, I think that creates a good year, good good opportunity for investors, any pullback we get. It's the billion dollar question, and I know that you're not a fortune teller. 
Mark, but you are an investor. How, how deep of a pullback can we expect? Uh, is it a 5 to 10% type thing? Is it even broader than that? I, I'm not sure many people are foreseeing a 50% pullback, but some people are. So what exactly is your base case for the type of pullback that we would see? It's not the crash style event, and that has been the problem. We have a lot of investors with cash on the sidelines, and they ask us that question almost every day. Look, the reality is as soon as we get a 2 3 or 4% decline, money rushes back in. When you have $5 trillion of cash by some accounts on the sidelines, and a lot of people waiting for this, they keep moving stocks up higher. This is an unloved bull market. This cash on the sidelines is a bullish indicator. Negative pessimism is a bullish indicator. So it's really difficult. And I think a mid-single-digit correction is something that these investors will eat up and get right back into. I don't think we're looking at a big correction here because the underpinnings and the liquidity from the Fed are too strong. But I think any opportunity, investors are jumping on it. And that's what's keeping people on the sidelines. What exactly are people buying? What are your clients asking you about with regard to where the opportunities are right now? Well, I think people are segmenting some of their investments. There's too much too much glory out there to not be in these unproven companies and new tech names. And a lot of people are gaining a risk appetite to be in the technologies of tomorrow. But there are sound fundamental sectors that are working. We think financials are going to have a great year. I saw your chart earlier on two years and 10-year treasuries. When you start getting a widening in the yield gap and you get an upward sloping yield curve, that, those are really good for banks. And we also think banks are going to head through a mergers and acquisition wave this year. We saw the start of it with SunTrust earlier in the year becoming truest now. And we think that banks need to gain scale. They need to compete. They need to pay for technology. They need to fight off these online deposit wars, which are raising their cost of funds. The best way for them to do that is to merge and join forces. That's going to raise valuations in the banking sector at a time when interest rates are going up, we think the financials are going to lead a continuation into this value trade that we've seen earlier this year and late last year. We've just got about a half a minute left here. What, what do you think are the big, biggest risks right now to the market overall? Biggest risk is a change in interest rates, either market driven, driving yields up or the Fed changing tone. Unlikely the Fed changes tone because half of their mandate is full employment and we're far from full employment. But we think the market, the, the movement up in rates could eventually make some bond yields attractive and could take some luster off of those tech stocks, which tend to flourish during low rate environments. All right. Great thoughts for sure. Mark Avalon of Potomac Wealth, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it, sir. Good to be here. All right. Let's take a look at what's happening at the futures market right now. Remember, all three major indices hit record highs in yesterday's session. So 401ks across America are doing fairly well right now. But the Dow Jones is now pulling back from that, implied lower by 63 points. The S&P implied lower by six. And the Nasdaq down by just about, oh, call it 16 to 20 points. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.